language is an agreement. At the very core, that is what language is. It is that you and I have agreed upon these sounds to mean these things. And I think we need to we need to err on the side of encouragement. Right? We go onto Facebook or we go online, and it's like we're looking to pick a fight instead of I. I mean, when's the last time you saw somebody post something and somebody wrote a five paragraph piece of encouragement? Like, oh, I love that. Let me let me just. Let me build you up for the next 15 minutes. Let me let me see all the things that you said that I agree with and that I love. Um, not because it's going to, you know, push an agenda, you know, not that kind of false. Let me build you up because you're saying all the things I wanted to say, but let me just build you up. So, so much of language is, you know, especially written type language is reactionary around things that we want to be in opposition with. Our written words, our typed words are the flags that we want to put in the ground and that we want to defend. We are two unique female professionals and friends that have come together to have meaningful conversations and a little fun along the way. Welcome to the Arable Podcast, where curious minds grow. I'm your host, Jenna Mountain, and I'm your other host, Kimberly Galindo. All right, we're already goofing off, y'all. Um, I am so excited. Um, I have the pleasure and joy of uh, introducing a returning guest, which happens to be my husband. Hey, babe. Yes. I'm assuming you got a lot of emails. I got a lot of emails requesting that I come back on the show. So many, so many emails. (laughs) We just blew up in popularity because of you, honey. I believe it. I believe it. Hey, Blaine, would you just... Tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. I know you did on our previous podcast, but um, you might want to expand information, you know, because that focus was kind of about your occupation. But um, just give a brief introduction to our listeners outside of being Jenna's fantastic husband. Who yeah, are definitely. <laughs> um, so I am, I have two, we've got two kids as well, uh, and I've been a public school teacher for the past, I don't know, 13, 14 years. I feel like um, have a bachelor's in English with a focus on, I think it was Brit lit at the time, British literature, maybe it was American. I don't know. I feel like it was hybrid Um, and been teaching English language arts uh, across several different school districts um, and yeah, do a little dabbling, writing, producing and Yeah. yeah, that's kind of where I'm at career-wise you are a you are a true creative spirit yeah i mean i love i love creatives um english language arts ela is a great opportunity to work with like-minded students who are creative and i get kind of get to help guide them and um, help them craft what they're what they're pursuing so it's fun yeah english connects with all the disciplines and all the content areas so Mm -hmm. love it well, thank you for coming back to the show. Um, the desire to do this episode um, birthed from some conversations that you and I have had over the past, I guess, maybe year. Uh, so in this pandemic experience, we've had some hard experiences like the rest of the world, but we've also had some really sweet experiences between you and I where we've literally got the kids to bed. The sun is still out. There are no lights on in the house, but we have a pretty, a pretty um, bright house because of the windows. And we just have sat in the living room talking about deep things. um, Some of them very personal and some of them very community and societal and have found ourselves talking until we realize we're sitting in a pitch black room because the sun's gone down and we have just continued to go, which is one of my favorite things about our relationship. I think we genuinely enjoy um, those interactions and and dialogues. And and some of the things that you said uh, were so meaningful to me. Um, And, you know, we were, we were talking about, the, the power of language in a lot of different ways. Um, again, some of those things in response to our digesting what was happening in the world around us. And I just thought, I mean, I've always had a value. I think I can speak for you too, Kimberly. Always had a value for 
in a mental health perspective, like the power of language, Mm -hmm. but there is definitely a, like another angle, uh, you being a, a student and a lifetime student of, um, the English language and writing and all of those things. And so we, I wanted to have you on and have this like neat dialogue, um, between the mental health space and, the art of language um, from which you are a professional. Thank you. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I mean, this year has been crazy. Um, I know with regard to language, just being online, everything has felt um, divisive. I was just, I mean, I think the, the internet's always been divisive, but I feel like the volume on divisiveness has just been turned up a notch. Uh, yeah. and just so it, it feels louder. Not that though that that sound the world hasn't been making those same sound and rumblings for the past thirty or forty years, but it's like we all just turned up the volume on what was white noise at a time. So yeah, lots of conversations around language and how people are using it because I felt like it was at mm-hmm. the forefront. We were all captive to everyone's post, um, whether they were spewing or venting or arguing or trying to build up. Um, and so language was at the forefront for for all of us because we couldn't rely on, we weren't relying on um, oral language, right? We were relying heavily on what people were typing and that was going through a me- new medium. Like when you're writing something, it's, it's a, just a different uh, animal than when you're speaking it and you're having all of the nuances that kind of go along with those types of interactions. So. Everything was just turned up a notch, most definitely. Yeah. So, Blaine, in your own words, what would you say the role of language, or the role language plays in our culture and society? I think it's a, it plays a powerful role, and I'd be curious what your thoughts and perspective are on the role of language. So that's a great question, uh, and that's one of the things that I have to, and I, don't, I guess I don't necessarily have to. Not all teachers take this approach. Um, but that's one of the first things that I try to unpack in my classroom within the first couple of weeks. We just try to establish um, what is the purpose of the course, right? Instead of students just taking it and being forced to take it, I want them to look past it. And so I, I, the question I ask at the very beginning of the year is, what is language? Right? And uh, the, typically the answer that I get is it's a form of communication. Um, it's how we talk how we interact with one another. So I just try to narrow the conversation down. I'm like, okay, if you could narrow it down to one word, what is language? And, you know, occasionally every couple of years, I'll have a student who will, who will do the, oh, I know exactly what you're thinking in your mind, Mr. Mountain, you know, because we're essentially playing that game. Um, yeah. But what I, what I reveal to them is that language is an agreement at the very core, that is what language is. It is that you and I have agreed upon these sounds to mean these things. And so we take it real back and we go archaic with it. And I say, all right, I'm a caveman. You're a caveman. We're transported into the future. We're in this classroom. We're both you and I are looking at this, what we, I, I believe to be a desk. I don't have a name for it. You don't have a name for it. And so I grunt and you grunt. (laughs) <laughs> and we kind of shake our heads and then we have to go back and forth. And we, um, the two of us, we have to decide what we're going to call it. And then as we bring our tribe um, with us, our family members, and we show them this new invention called a, a gr- gr- or a desk, um, we have to invite them into that same agreement that our tribe, that our group of people, that this is what we're going to define it as. Now, as we become more professional, we become more proficient then we're going to give it really technical terms, right? We're not just going to call it a desk. We're going to have a a technical term for a desk and and all the screws and the parts. And the more um, proficient and more professional we become and and really need this desk uh, and and begin to pick it apart, the more we're going to need very precise language. So we start with that. I just be be unpacking. I tell them, hey, that's why it's an art, because it's a dance. You and I are Mm -hmm. going to have to make some agreements around – what is what is language? I mean, what is art? I mean, there's there's millions of essays out there about around that idea of what is art. And so to add and to compound it with language, that's where I start. So um, I'll, I'll give you the answer that I give my students. I feel like language is an agreement. 
It's something that you and I, uh, as individuals and as a member of a community or a country uh, or the human race, we it's we always have to be negotiating around and deciding and agreeing upon. I so love getting a peek into your world and your classroom with your stories. Um, I love that you went there. I really did not know how you were going to answer that question. I know, I know we're like married, but like I had no idea. So I love that <laughs> it's going to lead to this next question. <laughs> um, and I'm going to share a little bit of a personal story, uh, which we can cut if you want me to, babe. Um, but I'm asking my next question because you as an expert on language in your own kind of space, I would say I also, in a different space, am an expert on language. You know, like Kimberly and I coming at this from like a mental health perspective. Um, this may this may burst all the bubbles that clients have about their therapist, but when you and I don't fight well, and yes, that happens, <laughs> therapists need therapists, and we don't always follow the rules that we teach and like all that. It's been interesting, um, and it's funny for me to look back on. It's never funny in the moment. But when you and I get a little spicy with each other and we're not conflicting in a healthy manner, some of the things that you and I have, like, got stuck on with each other is that, like, you know, we're talking to each other, and we start to argue about who's using the word the right way. <laughs> yeah. I don't know and if that's just, common in most marriages, but yes. I don't know. I, I There's a part of me that's like, let's have pride in the fact that we fight very intellectually. Like, we're like an argument for using the word the right way. Um, but it also, it's, it's you know, I can look back when, you know, when we're in a good space and go, oh my gosh, that's so funny that that's how we misbehave with each other. But I, I do want to talk about how language, terms, and words, especially coming off the heels of that definition you've offered us, how they're defined, how they're used, and very... Um, you talk about it's this ongoing pursuit of an agreement, um, but how we would use terms in different spaces based on our education and our background and our culture and how sometimes the same word can even have variation, which causes a lot of challenges. And I would I would love your thoughts on that from your perspective and not just about our marriage, but in general. <laughs> I mean, with language, you have to rely so heavily on context. I mean, I. I think being a linguist and being a counselor, I can definitely see those two careers being in line because they're always trying to unpeel uh, and decide on what is the what's the motive, what's the intent, how is this being in, is this being informed historically, is this is the phrase or the term that I use is it being informed by pop culture, uh, is it being informed by the specific region that I live in, or this is how my family. Uh, used it. And so that's why context is so important, right? You know, if, if by having that conversation with individuals, then when we're, when I ask a student or an individual to begin to look for context clues, there's more weight around why that pursuit is important, right? Because your teacher's always like, hey, we'll look for the context clues. They're there. And it's very straightforward. It's typically a synonym that's associated with the word, and then you connect the two. Uh, but with, but with most phrases, or terms, there's more to it than just finding yeah. a synonym. It's finding the right synonym. And all of that is informed by so many different um, different outside influences. Yeah. So context is key. And I think, you, tell me if I'm wrong, um, you're talking about like the, the, the practice of or the, the branch of, of linguistics, which is semantics. Um, where it's like concerned with the meaning of something um, or the language that's being used. Is, are, am I correct? Yeah, I took um, a grad course. It was just like a, an applied linguistics course. It, it was a part of, um, they wanted, now recently they made all teachers in the state of Texas get certified, ELL certified. So if you want to be an English language arts teacher, you have to be certified in English language um, learners. I mean, so it was a course that was offered through SMU and that's when I got a, kind of got a peek into more of what linguists, linguists do. And they're really interested in um, how a word is being used presently and then how it was used historically and the evolution of that word. Uh, because, mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of times we'll look at, we want, you know, we want to go to the definition, but we're not looking at the etymology, what part of the world, when it was originated, how it evolved. Uh, and linguists are very much interested in all of those things. So 
uh, it, it definitely helped inform how I teach language. And it gave me a lot more empathy around where students were coming from and, and just gave me a lot of grace uh, with individuals as well. And just how important all of those factors are and, uh, in those agreements. Well, I've been known in my office and it, it actually birthed a long time ago when, you know, I, I was I was working with some clients and 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 one of them said, well, it's just semantics. Right. And we've all heard that phrase. And I was like, but in this office, that matters. Like, I need yeah. to know what you mean when you say that. And so I, I do think sometimes um, it can be exhausting to pursue the meaning that that is being um are attempted to be communicated because we don't always share meaning when we use when we use um, similar language. So, yeah, yeah, and I think um, and I think about this year specifically, which is the kind of origin of this conversation. But um, where we think we might be on the same page and using it effectively, and you know, we we we're we're utilizing the same semantics and we're not and. Or, you know, where we know we're not or we don't know we're not. Um, so I'm curious what you would say, Blaine, what contributes to our ability to use language effectively? Like when people utilize it well, what creates that positive, productive reality? Um, I feel like I've seen a lot of the uh, unproductive, uh, negative <laughs> realities, especially over this last year. But, you know, just in, in human experience, whether that's in the mental health space or just in life in general, um, but what what makes it productive and positive as we use it effectively? I, I think, and, and I know people at home listening aren't probably going to like this answer, um, but it takes a lot of work is what it takes. I had a phone call with a friend of mine. and All the therapists like that answer, by the way. <laughs> we vote yes. I had a friend of mine, he was calling, and we were, having, I can't even remember the word, but he was like, people, we just... They just need to start using the word how it's supposed to be used, right? And <laughs> what a novel I, idea. <laughs> I was trying to I was trying to convince him that it wasn't that easy. That that word in particular mm -hmm. that he was using has evolved, and it no longer means what it once meant. And we have to provide space for that. Uh, so I'll give an example in my own personal life. Since I work with young people, and I'm, I'm having to communicate with them all the time. Uh, my jokes and my stories, they always land better when I'm using the language that a 17-year-old would, would use, um, whether I'm using it facetiously, like on, on purpose, I'm trying to like build out a sarcasm, so I'll use a word wrong, but I really have to be, and I'm going to use the word right, I have to be tapped in. Young people like that word right now. This probably, that word yeah. probably won't age well. <laughs> Thank you for but educating me. <laughs> I have to, I really got to be tapped in to how a word is being used so I can use it correctly or I can use it incorrectly on purpose, right? But I need to be mm -hmm. informed. Um, and the way I do that is I listen to music that young people are listening to, right? I don't, I don't always necessarily love rappers that are uh, like real current and popular, but I'm listening to their phrasing so that when a student uses a, a word in my classroom, I'm not j making assumptions. I'm not just assuming that they're saying something that has a negative connotation, that it very much may have a very positive connotation. So I have to be, um, I really have to be in tune with my audience. And so I would say to an individual who's looking to maybe converse with somebody outside of their, um, you know, maybe a person who has a different background or upbringing, you, you, you want to be listening to the things they're listening to, maybe reading um, articles from places where they would gather that information, but you really want to think about the source, like what is influencing them? Like how are, how are they coming to that agreement that that word or that phrase means those things? And so you have to be reading, um, a lot of times you got to be reading things that you disagree with in hopes that you can figure out how they're defining the, the same words that you're using. And not that you're yeah. right or they're, they're, you're, they're wrong. It's just, okay, cool. Well, I, now that I know that you, when you mean that, when you say that word, um, that's why the whole Black Lives Matter or All Lives Matter turned into such a debacle is because of this same mm -hmm. type of uh, us not wanting to do the work and not rep recognizing that, um, you know, a phrase can have an idea behind it that's connected to an organization and it also could, could not be connected to 
organization with with regard to like Black Lives Matter and things of that nature. And so people got so yeah. hung up on the fact that it was one or the other and that it can be both. And it just really depends on the context and who you're talking to in the moment. So, uh, yeah, you got me to be to be as you know, to use language. Well, you have to be reading and really listening and from a lot of different mediums and outlets. And not just from your perspective either is what I'm hearing. Yeah, not in 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 hopes of learning, right? You're you're reading the thing in, in hope of learning uh, how to add nuance to how you even use the word, you know, with regard to your to your audience. And a lot of that's speculation because you don't necessarily always know who who you know what what certain phrases are going to land or be trigger points for certain people. You're starting to touch on this, but I want to ask this, the question specifically. I mean, you've, you've talked about assumptions. You've talked about, um, you know, not not taking the time to learn and, and actually, like, learn the other perspective, not because you have to adopt it, but because you just need to understand where people are coming from. So what are what are some of the examples of language gone poorly? Um, uh and and like what are what are the big mishaps? And I want to make sure I ask the opposite question to to see if we're capturing all of that because I think it's you're directing us in in the here's here's how it goes better if we do this it's it's going to be more likely to, to go well, um, and touching on where we start to mess up what you know what are the things. That, that are poor practices when it comes to the use of language and get us in trouble, do you think? I think, um, so as, I mean, I know all these examples are from, from an educator, from an educator standpoint. I think one of the things that has gotten me in my, in trouble in my career is not being empathetic around where somebody's coming from. So I'll have a student who may be struggling or they're just not enjoying the class. Maybe they're not enjoying the content and they'll push back you know, I've, I've had to make a correction because part of my job is, you know, correcting and, uh, and, and helping giving feedback. And so a student will they take it very personally, the feedback, and they'll say, um, Mr. Mountain, that's just how I talk. Right. This, this, just, this is just very much this is how I talk. And when I was first teaching, I would just hear that is, oh, this student just doesn't want to be compliant. Right. They just want to be non non-compliant. Uh, they want to fight. They don't want to do the work. They're looking for for an out. And mm-hmm. what I didn't what I've learned over time is that. That that student, that is exactly how they felt. Right. That really wasn't how they talk. And so it's not that they were did, didn't want to do what I wanted to do. It's just that want them to do. It's just that they felt like it was my opinion versus their opinion. And mm-hmm. so who are you to tell me that I'm that I'm right or that I'm wrong? Uh, and so I've, I've, what I've over, you know, the past 10 years, instead of it being a fight, I have to sit with it and I have to agree with them. I say, yes, that is very much how you talk. And when I was in college, uh, I took a Spanish class uh, and I had to retake that Spanish class a couple of times because I struggled with Spanish. And <laughs> there were, there were Full probably, disclosure. there were times where I wanted to tell my Spanish professor, like, I know you're. I know you're doing the whole Spanish thing up there, but this is how I talk. Right? I just. I don't do a whole lot of Spanish during the day. And this, is, this is just how I talk, Professor. So I, you, you keep saying that I keep getting the wrong answers, but this is just how I talk. And that that it creates some lightheartedness around, and and then I'm able to teach them. It's around context, and then I'm playing the same game that they're playing. There are many opportunities where. Uh, I wouldn't be speaking to them in the same manner. It just, it just depends on our roles and kind of where we're at in our setting. We have to be mindful of our uh, setting, and so that's kind of where I where I take. I try to I try to help them move to a space that they have to agree that my feedback is worthwhile. That they're going to be in a setting, um, or they're going to have an audience that may be similar to me. And then if they know what my that my type of audience expects, maybe an employer, um, maybe it's a person in authority, maybe it's just I don't know, maybe it makes you somebody I, who who knows the, the circumstance in which I would fit their audience. Um, but I want them to be prepared for those moments so that they can they can move back and, and forth between those, right? That they can be um, 
speak many like you know to speak spanish to speak french to speak english and on all of those things is a gift and for me to help instruct them around maybe a more standardized form of the english language uh would be just help them it would be a gift to them and give them more opportunities because they can mm-hmm. they can move in so many different worlds and uh and not and not create a lot of friction for them or for the person they're communicating with so that's one of the big things on my end is just having to, to empathize with uh, with people around you know just their perception around language because most people haven't just sat around for hours and hours and thought about what is language what are words <laughs> what does it mean what does it mean to communicate and i and i've been forced to because i'm getting asked those questions and so i have to have at least thought about it and considered it for myself and yeah um and decided so that that's a lot of where it goes it goes wrong um Another another time is when we gaslight individuals. This is gaslighting is a big is a is a word that my wife has uh, definitely instructed me on that I'm that I've had to learn. So and I think that's I didn't I didn't have the word for that at that time you know in the time but I think we we gaslight one another. We know that they know, but yet we want to play we want to play a game and just defend it even though we know you know. So I think a lot of gaslighting takes place with with regards to language, language as well like oh yeah i didn't whoa i didn't know i didn't know. oh you're feeling that way i didn't know that that my phrase that i used made you feel that way well no you did you did <laughs> you knew that oh, oh, oh. love it so what i what i love about the points you're making about when it goes poorly is um i think something that we can really connect with as mental health professionals is that The, I don't, I don't know, the behaviors, the words, the approach to language that typically um, starts to take us down like a negative experience is when, when in some form or fashion we lose sight of the human being in front of us. Like the human experience of the language, which kind of goes back to your first mm-hmm. definition, which is about like seeking agreement, not agreement that we have the same philosophies and beliefs and all of that, but like we're, we're getting in sync with one yeah. another and so it's very much so keeping that human um in front of us like in focus uh, so I, I i love all that mm-hmm. for sure yeah no i love the the empathy i love the you know it's work like you said blaine you know it's i think we want to compartmentalize and separate all these parts of ourselves and my words are just this thing that I do separate from the relationships that I'm in or the context in which I'm in. And, um, yeah, if we're going to use our words, well, we, we keep sight of the human in front of us. Um, from a mental health perspective, you know, uh, in, in my world, we, we spend a lot of time focusing on meaning making, you know, as a part of the, the healing process. You know, because again, words, but what, what is the meaning making to you? You know, when you have the negative belief about yourself as a person, you know, what, where did that meaning making come from you is, you know, kind of an example of something that we might do. But from your perspective, how do you think language contributes to health and goodness? And when does it go from that to destructive? Because I think we can, Mm. I know Jen and I could probably spend a lot of time giving examples of when that gets destructive, whether it's in the, our family of origin or our marriage relationships or whatnot. Mm-hmm. But from, from your vantage point, when is it healthy and flourishing? And then when is it just so destructive and, and what contributes to that? I think, I mean, uh, one, of, one of the big things for me that I've learned I, mean, I feel like all this stuff is just recent within the past like three to five years is since the role of a teacher is very much one who is making corrections, right? Mm-hmm. A student, a student is attempting perfection, right? They want that a hundred or they're attempting a mastery. They're trying to showcase mastery. And Hold it's on, my, pause for a second. Okay. what kind of teacher are you Blaine? Do do hundred papers exist or do they not? <laughs> do, do you, you ever give out hundreds? Oh yeah, definitely. Oh yeah, most okay. definitely. Okay, because yeah. you know, there's some people like there are no perfect papers. Don't expect one. I know, and that's <laughs> uh, there's so there's a there's this joke, this meme that's going around around um, 
teachers and the way that teachers are rated. We moved to this new system a couple years ago, uh, and the highest you can get is proficient. Even though there's another category, they tell you that that category exists, but you can't get it. And so teachers are just it's unattainable. They've created an unattainable category. No matter we have mental health issues. Yeah, and so it's the oh. weirdest thing. I saw this um this meme that's going floating around in my teacher group, and it has Simone, uh, the gymnast, right, world class gymnast, and the real big words right across it. It shows her landing this thing that's beautiful, and it says proficient. And I'm just like, and so I recognize that. That is, I do that, I do that as teachers all the time, right? We tell them, okay, that's not a 100, that's not perfect, that's not what I want. Well, what is perfection? Well, it's this abstract, nuanced thing that I've created in my mind that only I obtain. And so, I mean, I definitely try to give hundreds. I try to give hundreds anytime I can, right? Just to establish the fact that um, 100 doesn't necessarily mean perfection. It just means you did all the things I asked you to do, right? It's 100 is, is more of a checklist than anything. I asked you to do this, this, and this. Okay, maybe you didn't do it in the way that I thought, imagined, but that wasn't what I had asked of you, right? That's what I thought in my mind. What I asked you to do is this, and you did this, you get a 100, and you get a 100, and you get a 100. Mm, um, and so like having. Pro of 100s. Yeah, the hundreds. <laughs> so I love I've, this. I'm going to come to class with you, Blaine. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. So I've, def- I've definitely moved to giving more 100s, but everything inside me is like, well, that's not exactly what I wanted. Well, if that's exactly what I wanted, I needed to, ma- I needed to do my- a better job of making that clear because there are so many students who come back to me and say, okay, Mr. Mountain, I see I got a 97. What exactly did I miss? And I'm like, okay, well, you see this thing over here? Well, I need you to do more of this and less of that. But at the same time, finding a balance between the two, like that, is, <laughs> that means nothing. Um, so I've identified that that's my role. So what I've shifted to is I just try to do a lot more encouragement, right? I know that I'm going in order to earn, uh, the role of giving feedback and maybe even giving difficult constructive criticism at time. I need to be encouraging anytime I can around things that are maybe a little less class related, you know, just like a lot of building up. We do a we do a question of the day, and I learned this from one of my mentor teachers, and she said the question of the day it does, achieves two things. Uh, it allows a student to be seen and allows a student to be heard. And there's all this research around that if a student is heard within the first three or four minutes of class, like uh, the potential of them sharing again in the class like, grows exponentially. And if yeah. they don't say anything, if they're not seen or heard in the first five minutes of class, the, ch- the chance of that kid speaking for the rest of the class period is so low. Um, so I ask that question a lot of times so I can see students and I can hear them and then I can encourage them. Oh, you, oh, strawberry starburst are your favorite? Mm, what a, what a, what an amazing choice. <laughs> I love, I can see that. I can, I love, I love the, che- you know, I love strawberries. You know, it's just try to, try to lead with a lot of encouragement so that when it's time to get real technical and, and maybe picky around the words they're using and how they're doing certain things, I've earned um, that opportunity to, to speak to them in that manner and, and give them that kind of feedback because they they're like Mr. Mountain's an encourager. He's always encouraging us. He's always building us up. Mm-hmm. So I, I'll give him space uh, to to maybe give me some feedback that's constructive and that may that may sting a little bit. So I think I, I although I love everything that was just unpacked, I, I detoured us a little bit. So I'm, I'm playing. I'm going to bring you back. Okay, to, cool, definitely. To Kimberly's question, which was. How does language, how do you think it contributes to health and goodness and, and then when does it contribute to being destructive? Yeah, so that that's the thing. I think I think we need to we need to err on the side of encouragement. Right? We go onto Facebook or we go online and it's like we're looking to pick a fight instead of I, I mean, when's the last time you saw somebody post something and somebody wrote a five paragraph piece of encouragement? Like, oh, oh I yeah. love that. Let me let me just <laughs> let me build you up for the next 15 minutes. Let me oh, let me man. see all the things that you said that I agree with and that I love, um, not because it's going to, uh, you know, push an agenda, you know, not that kind of false. Let me build you up because you're saying all the things I wanted to say, but let me just build you up. So so much of language is, you know, especially written typed language is reactionary around things that we want to be in opposition Ooh. with. Our written words, our typed words are. Um, the flags that we want to put in the ground and that we want to defend. And it's unfortunate that 
anytime we sit down to type something that's more than a couple sentences or a like or heart, it's going to be combative. I feel like our default around long form communication, written communication is combative, uh, which is strange. I mean, I, I feel like I'm just now coming to that realization right now as I'm saying these things. Um, but I don't know why that is. I think it's because maybe it's because schools play a part. Like when you're asked to write an essay, you're asked to write an argumentative essay. Um, mm. You're asked to write a persuasive essay. Or a compare and contrast. Or compare yeah. and contrast. It's, it's how often is like, hey, I just want you to talk about how awesome this thing is for five pages and then I want you to give it back to me. But I think a lot of how we design, how we, how we're, how we learn language is around how things are different or how things are yeah, wrong. Debate and critiquing. And yeah. That's at the core that. of our English studies. I feel like, like, yeah, so like ways. language development is in that context. That's so interesting. I'm having that moment with you, babe, because I'm like, Oh, I think you're right. Like, like, I think about all my writing training, and I have definitely not spent as much time in that space as you have. But I'm thinking about all my major assignments were about, can you push back effectively? Yeah. And Ninth if you grade. can't, if you can't, it's like, it's weakness, right? If your debate yeah. wasn't, you didn't really capture your side of things as well and argue back, mm, you know, then your, your you use have of language. Short. Yeah, your use of language was lacking you know or yeah. you're passive or too kind or yeah we definitely interesting mm, that's mm. very interesting okay so i want to talk about the evolution of language because this was one of the conversations this this i mean we had so many good ones over this past year which i'm very thankful for but this one that we had it was more recent um was the one i was like you have to come on the podcast and talk about this um so this idea of the evolution of language, you've you've actually kind of touched on that throughout um, the episode already. Um, so this idea of inventing or the creating of new terms and words, and I, I think we do not really understand, uh, like the just the general public, um, and this might this might depend on what culture you grow up in, but I really don't think we understand the evolution of language and how powerful that is. Um, like I, uh, no offense to any French speakers, but I did the what I find today to be the not wise investment of my time and took French um, in high school and college to fulfill my requirements. I loved it, um, but I feel like I would probably get more use out of Spanish being being a, a Texas um, dweller. But uh, like I remember one of the things when you're in those language classes is you also learn a few little cultural pieces. And I, I know the French really guard the evolution of their language. They actually try not to let as many changes happen and occur. Um, and I have not kept up in those studies. I just remember learning that about the, the culture and the language and all of that. Um, and so it may... This may be different for people who live in, in different areas and, and countries and, and cultures. But you were telling me, and I'm, I'm a trauma therapist. I just did not, I just don't, I didn't have this history. But you were telling me uh, the story, your story of learning about um, when the word rape came into the language. Like it did not always exist. Yes. And the power that that had um, on um, society and what it did for victims, and so I would, I would, I want you to talk about how the evolution of language, and and maybe with that story, because I, I just don't think people. I think sometimes we resist change, but there are there are very good examples of where it is so deeply needed that we have new words for things. No, definitely. I'll get. I'll give um, a little bit of background. Um, so I was taking that applied li linguistics course, and that was the intent of my professor. She was very much trying to help us understand why etymology and evolution of words was important. And this is in a room full of English teachers, and she's trying. You can tell she's pitching to us. She's trying to convince us um, that this is worthwhile because one of the one of our tasks, one of our assignments, is we had to create our own words. Uh, and then we had to report back to the class and we had to tell the class of what our word is and what it meant. And we would combine it with uh, maybe another phrase or another word that was common. 
And so she was giving us the history of uh, of France and, and how they very much guard their language. And there have been many places uh, you go where it's mandated by the government that it can only be written in French, right? So they only adopt certain amount of words. And I know that every year, uh, you know, like it's American Heritage Dictionary, dictionary.com, they put out a list of all the new words, right? Mm-hmm. Like here are all the new words from 2021 and they are adopting them into their dictionary. And it's weird because we kind of laugh about it, but these, 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 because we think our our perception of a dictionary is that it's supposed to be static, that it's not supposed to change, mm. uh, that it's supposed to be this like this fixture that never evolves. When dictionaries are like, we have new words. We want to share our new words with the world. And we kind of laugh and we're like, I can't believe that's a word. You, you hear people say it all the time. I can't believe that they made that a word. And and it go and I, I didn't realize how damaging and how dangerous that approach and that philosophy was until she unpacked it for us. So, um, so there was that, I'll, I'll go into that. And then that was paired with another piece of information that I learned when I was studying literature and around the same time that in the word that we'll talk about it, the word rape, uh, the, around the time that that word was evolving, um, the idea of just text in themselves was evolving. So for example, uh, I'll, I'll pick up, a, I always pick up a textbook and I hold, this in my hand and I show ask students like what is this and you know students are like that's a book and I'm like okay cool you're exactly right I was like now what 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 is how is that word changed we not only call this a book what do we call this thing and there will be a couple students who who will be able to do the whole mind reading game thing and and figure out what I'm saying and they're like we call that a text right I'm like okay you're exactly right that's called a text I'm like where does that a word originate from uh, and you know, they think, oh, it's, you know, like text messages. Okay. Okay, cool. Like, what, what is, what is text short for? And we talk about this idea that text means texture. It's short for texture. So the next time you go online and you're asked to add a comment to somebody else's comment, what is that called? Like you're in a forum. Texture. No, you're in a forum and you have to add to the, the forum. What's that? What's that? All those additions, what are those called? If you were reading all the comments, all the comments together, I'm playing the game. This is the game that I always play. Is my it a post? I know. I'm not gonna win at this okay. game. Okay. Like <laughs> okay. So, okay. So all of those posts. So we co- should pause right now yeah. and just go ahead and put into the space that like I am not a great writer. I married yeah. my husband to like help me in this area, so like I will lose at these games all the time. Like I don't know. I don't know what that word means. Well, okay. Well, they're, they're, it's a new term. It's, these are new terms. So in a in a in a forum, when you're posting, that's called a thread, because oh, yes, okay, yeah, it's called it's called a thread because what we consider language to be is text, and it has texture. So, for example, I'm wearing this shirt right now, and if I were to rip this shirt, right, you know, I'm high school, rip the shirt, I come back home and I say, Mom, why do high hey, schoolers rip the shirt? I don't know. I just I feel like my <laughs> shirt gets ripped a lot more when I'm <laughs> in high school than now. I, because I, I, I would come home and I would say, I'd say, mom, my shirt got ripped. And she would take this, um, the string because it was made of texture and she would be able to weave in, she would be able to thread oh. in a new layer. And so there was this big cultural war that was taking place in most, uh, universities in the sixties and seventies around, uh, like a Western canon. Uh, and it was very much built and steeped in patriarchy, but it was this idea that, that a book, what, you know, you know, growing up, it's like the teacher had the answer and nobody else had the answer. Right. And so now we've evolved to kind of this idea of text and everybody can begin to thread their ideas into, into this text. So as it relates back to this applied linguistics course, she talked about uh, the word rape and she asked us if we were familiar with what its origin and what it meant. Uh, and we were all we were all very attuned to the fact that, you know, it meant to like to take. Uh, in a very aggressive and, and violent way and, and even had sexual connotations with it. And she, she told us that during like the 50s and 60s, that was not the case, right? Uh, that that there, were, there were instances uh, where a woman, let's say that she, a married woman, would go into a police station and her husband mm-hmm. uh, had had sex with her, right? And she didn't want him to have sex with her. So she'd go in the police station. She'd say, "Officer such and such, um, I'm here because my, I'm here because my my husband, like, 
he made me have sex with him. And that would not resonate with the police officer at the time. Oh, your mm-hmm. husband, you, your husband had sex with you. That's what you're telling me. Mm-hmm. And he did not hear that as a violation because the term rape was not associated. Rape did not occur to married women. It wasn't until the 60s and 70s that we began to associate the term rape could be any form of violation, sexual violation, whether the person was your spouse uh, or not. And at the when that word worked its way into mainstream, it empowered all of these women who had experienced sexual assault from a family from from their husband, right? Somebody who was. Um, you know, that, that word didn't, those two things didn't exist, the the pairing of the two. Mm -hmm. And so when they were given that word now in 2021, you can walk into a police station and you can say, my husband raped me. And that had that accusation or what occurred, um, had to be taken seriously. You know, officers such and such couldn't just write you off and send you back to your husband by you being able to say that one word to a person in authority, now you had, you regained some level of power around what was going to transpire. But before that, there was no word for it because we didn't have an agreed upon word for, um, for that, for married women, they were, they were powerless. Right. And so when she told me that it just like, that's when it just blew my mind. And I had a new appreciation and a new understanding and a new desire to like okay cool i need to adopt more words into my language i need to give space for people who want to use words differently because um i'm if i don't i could be taking something very important away from them and not acknowledging that yeah so yeah i remember when we were talking about that again in one of our long conversations in the living room and i thought Just the fact that I, I, I think it, I think it's lost on us that language has that much power. And I think I don't think we um, take the time to care about um, I think we use language really flippantly. I don't think we take the time to um, invest in understanding uh, the evolution of language and where it grows and how that is good. Um, and so I think, I think, you know, I think a good portion of people are just like unaware and don't care. And we, I would like to invite people to be more intentional with that. But then I do also think there, there are those who are, who are actively pushing against, Hmm. um, that type of growth and intentionality and care. And that's scary to me, you know, and I, and I just remember that struck me in a new way as you were telling me that story. Yeah, we, we don't, I think we, we don't realize what's at stake. By not not finding an agreement, not not working towards an agreement, I think it takes something as horrific as as rape, um, even for me to open my eyes to how important it is to to understand that. I mean, think about some of the terms that have just been, for, been in, adopted within our language within the past four or five years. Uh, mm-hmm. I would have never used the word triggering when I was in high school, mm-hmm. but now I, my my students can come to me. And I, and I know we laugh at, you know, some people laugh at this, you know, this generation is so soft, but a student can come to me and they can say, Mr. Mountain, that, that this is triggering for me. And I can understand now. Know what that, that means. That, I can know what that means. Oh, this incident is connected to an incident that they've experienced before that may have been traumatizing or affecting. Oh, I, I need to take this seriously. Well, well tell yeah. me more about it. Or how can I, how can I create, how, how can I help this classroom be a little bit, be a safer space? But you know, what word would you tell your teacher, you know, when you were when you're in the in the early 90s, if if something that occurred in the classroom affected, pulled something from your youth, all of a sudden you're starting to remember about your childhood that's damaging. You would have had to have this long phrase. Yep. You would have stumbled through your phrase words and mm. phrases. You would have had to give them a paragraph. You would have had to tell mm-hmm. them probably what happened. Hey, when I was five years old, this is what happened to me. And this is re- this is recalling that memory. Now a that's student a can say that's a, a lot. Survivor. That is now, like, yeah, it's too much. It's too much. A child trauma survivor. On yeah. Now, now, the, now we've empowered young people to say, "This feels. This is triggering," and I can say, "Okay, well, how can I support you? Do you need to step outside? Do I need to do this? Do I need to do that?" 
and one word has changed a dynamic that a, a person had with a person in authority. And so that's why we need to can we need to lean into it and continue to to adopt yep. more words that um, speak to a person's experience, right? Yeah. So I think one of the one of the at least for me uh, the newer words over the past <clears throat> it's been more than just this year because you and I started this journey together I don't know two two and a half years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but the word anti-racist was very powerful for me. Where it was, you know, and I, I love Ibram Kendi's work where he's saying, like, just saying I'm not a racist or that is not me does not actually actively put you into a posture of constant pursuit and growth towards the ultimate goal of fighting racism and um, being actively against. Um, so just because you're not actively for racism, which would be a not racist, doesn't mean you're actively pushing back against it. And so like that, 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 you know, we started reading that about two and a half years or listening to it together two and a half years ago. And I remember thinking that term has changed the way I think about systemic racism, um, is forever changed me. And, and the fact that he chose to language it that way was, was really powerful. And for the person, the recipient of it, who's hearing an individual say they're anti-racist, it lets that person know that um, that the individual they're communicating with is not going to be passive around racism. They're not just going to, you know, if something racist occurs, they're not just going to just allow it to occur and just sit there and be passive. Because you can be not racist and allow racist things to be said around around you you or in your presence. But if you're you're actively letting people know that you're you're anti-racist, and that means you are going to combat those things and you're going to take a, maybe a hard stance when that's needed. And so that, that's why a word like anti-racist is it's powerful for the person who is anti-racist because it puts them in a posture of having to actively think about their context, how they're acting in the moment. And it's encouraging for the person. It's a safe space for the person who hears it. OK, cool. Well, this person, this person is doing the work. I can I can recognize that this person is going to be actively uh, and if I need to address something that they do, they've done that's mm-hmm. going to be they're not going to be defensive. They're going to they're going to they're going to recognize that okay, this is part for the course because part of being anti-racist is recognizing some things that I may not even I may be blind to. And by saying I'm anti-racist, and I'm open to you pointing out those blind spots, right? I'm yeah. I'm, I'm I'm want that. Uh, and so that's just how powerful, you know, one word can. Can be, and I think I think we I think 2020 was a tough year because we got lots of new words we were having yes. to adopt into our uh, our lexicon, right? Our own personal dictionary that we have in our mind. So, totally. What do you think, Blaine? What would you say some helpful things we as a society could do specifically with language and words? to better us, to grow us, um, for the good of people. I think we know how destructive it can be. Mm. We can all point to those moments in our life, but I think this last, you know, 15 months, we can just see what's just been so destructive. But in, in the opposite direction, what, where could it better us and grow us? I think, I think it can grow us, um, to be to be actively be looking for words around how we're feeling, right? I think for me, you know, you know, I, I mean, I study language, but I don't necessarily study languages that relates to emotions. So I know as you know, I'll continue to try to grow. I don't always have the, the words for what I'm feeling, and so I can just sit in that and just be like, oh, you know, this well, that's just how I talk, right? That's just how I feel. <laughs> I that's how I interact. I don't have words for. <laughs> That's just how I, I feel and talk about my feelings. That's just how I feel and talk and about I'm my feelings. Learn. <laughs> I got three feelings. I'm sad and I'm mad and I'm happy. <laughs> <laughs> that man and happy. so I think, I think one of the things that's encouraging is knowing that that word probably, it may exist, but you're going to have to go find it, right? You're going to have to mm-hmm. go looking for it. Somebody's got that word uh, and that word, you, by you even knowing that word and having that word, it's going to be very, very powerful for you and encouraging. and It's going to build you up. And so know that there are words the words are out there you know and the where the words are there for us to adopt 
if, if we're looking for them. One of the things that I always ask, you know, I try I see I see how many native speakers I have in the classroom and we find out how many different languages uh, and we begin to talk about taste, the way that things taste and how some cultures and countries have words for certain flavors. Like if something is warm and spicy, it's different than if something is cold and spicy in some uh, in, in, in mm. some languages. We have a very truncated version of it. Like we have to use a phrase uh, and I'll have a student give a bunch of examples. They'll list three or four. Um, and I, I try to get the class to see like how powerful is that, that there's a word for that, right? Mm -hmm. Like how, how helpful would mm. it be if we all knew that word? Uh, and so this idea, if we would, if we're continue to look for, for words, um, there was a, uh, a politician recently in this idea of woke. They're, they're trying to frame this idea of wokeness as, as a negative connotation, because that'll happen. People will try to take, mm -hmm. take words that have this newfound connotation or they'll try to twist it instead of recognizing that this word means that and it means it for these this group of people for certain reasons because it is empowering and we don't want to rob people uh of their of their words because when we rob them of their words we never know what what is truly at stake around those we words don't know what we're taking phrases. From yeah so i i would just encourage people to just you know as i'm looking for more emotional words to to be able to describe the way i feel i'm sure there's people who you know, need to go on that same journey with regard to know, whether it's racism or um, their views on capitalism or colonialism or um, whatever, whatever your view is that you may be railing against and pushing back on. Uh, I would encourage people to really investigate those words because it can be very eye opening um, for them. So, yeah, I think I think we need more words in our life. Definitely. Absolutely agreed. Um, there's two things that come up for me as you're talking. Um, I think about, and we've mentioned this in the podcast before, Kimberly, but like Kurt Thompson's work when he talks about, um, to your point, Blaine, like there's a word out there to describe your experience. He talks about how if we can put, I, I'm going to mess this up because he is so eloquent, but if you can put like give some language and some hooks in the left brain, for the right brain experience to grab onto like that is that is a really important part of the, the human and healing process um and and that that word is probably out there and as you tell the story about being you know like the word woke and someone trying to push back on the use of that word I think about a person, a single person, a group of people, like for an experience to be so strong that there is not yet a word to capture it, that you would need a new word. That's got to be really profound. And, and so, yeah, to like, again, keep the human in front of us in sight. Um, I, no, I, I may not know what these words mean or represent on a human experience level when I first encounter them, but to be patient and to be able to sit well with that and, and to be curious, a word that we like a whole lot on, on Arable. So, oh man, that was good. That was really good. Awesome. Yeah. There's lots of good words out there and they keep adding, they keep adding to the dictionary, which is a, which <laughs> is an awesome and powerful and, and thing that we should celebrate alongside all these dictionary companies that are trying to sell dictionaries. We get new words. Well, babe, same two questions we always end the show with. You've been asked them you've been asked them once before, but we're gonna ask you again. Um, what would you like the audience to take away from our conversation and what do you want to leave them with? Um, I, I think hope hopefully leave them with some empathy around the way that the way that I just the way people talk, right? Just in the same way that I had to uh, I had to be open to reevaluating how I was interacting with people. I couldn't just, I can't just, if it keeps, if something keeps coming up, then maybe it's you, you know, maybe, maybe you're the problem for me, you know, for, for me, it was, I, I recognize it. Mountain's getting spicy. Yeah. I'm here for it. Because yeah. as a teacher, you get to have deja vu. You get to teach the exact same thing and you have a new set of people in your room. So they don't know 
that somebody's already told you that before. And so you get to have this, like, <laughs> you're stuck in Groundhog Day. And so I realized as, a, as, a, as an educator, if somebody keeps pushing back on me on something, then maybe it's just me that needs to change. Maybe there's something that I'm, I'm approaching differently. And so I would just encourage, you know, not, not everybody gets to experience that where every single year you get people asking you the same questions and pushing back on you in the same way. Uh, and you don't ever have to grow. I, I would encourage people, if you do have those moments in your life where people keep pushing against you, maybe you're right, you know, Hey, Hey, maybe you are right. Um, but there is a chance out there that you're, you're wrong. You need to, you need to be, to be, be more, uh, like the Americans. You know, you need to be able to adopt some new language, right? Opposed to just putting restrictive laws around how you do life and things of that nature. So that's the big thing. What's your takeaway from our conversation today? Um, I think it was good. Um, I, mean, I, I was I was excited to be able to talk to counselors about it because, I mean, my wife's always teaching me new ways that words are being used and how they're used and I have to be open to that. So um, I think the, the takeaway of we all have nuanced professions in which we use language and all of those are really valid, right? The way that a surgeon talks, I want a surgeon to talk about my body in a way that a surgeon talks about. I don't want him to call my elbow my elbow, right? Because if it's just, um, you know, if he's not using technical, if he doesn't know the technical terms, then we're in a whole lot of trouble. <laughs> you don't want him as right. your surgeon. <laughs> He's like, yeah, nope. yeah, that thing on you, that thing on your face. You, oh, you mean my, 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 you know, my orbital or whatever the word is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the word I was looking for. <laughs> you don't want that experience, like, babe. I don't, I don't want that experience. <laughs> so I think you know, especially there. Um, yeah, it's just it's it's great to be able to talk to professionals who have an even more nuanced uh, understanding of words as it relates to certain things, and we. It's always great to be able to, to learn from those people and experience that. So that's the big takeaway. Awesome. Blaine, thank you so much. This was a gift. Hey, you're welcome. We'll be thinking about some of this stuff for, for quite a while. Yeah, we didn't we didn't even get to talk about logical fallacies. I had this whole thing where oh, I was talk about logical fallacies. We're gonna fallacies, bring you back for that. We'll logical talk about logical we're fallacies. Just, we have to have do like it. A, this is an intro course. Visit. Yeah. yeah, we're gonna have regular visits by my husband, Blaine Mountain. We'll do a whole episode on logical fallacies. I cannot wait. It'll be great. Cool. Awesome. Love you, babe. All right. Love you, too. My real husband and my work wife, all in one experience. Yeah, I have to say it's good, y'all. Y'all educate. Um, what was your takeaway from the conversation? There's so many nuggets, but like, what would you say? Your message. I was actually surprised by the end that Blaine didn't say this after what happened. But I think my takeaway was like that moment that he was having. I was having it too, where we realized that like my written language development was primarily from a like a critique, argumentative, persuasive, combative <laughs> uh, posture. And I'm just so curious about that. Um, like, I guess I learned to do a descriptive essay, but I, I really, in that moment, I was like, hmm, mm -hmm. this is a really interesting observation from a development perspective. So that was, that was my takeaway, just realizing that that was my story as much as I can remember, which is what I caught of what I was taught and mm -hmm. that, that the impact that that has. Um, yeah, I'm just fascinated by it. What about you? What was your takeaway? Gosh, it was definitely, I mean, I had so many, it was one of them was definitely that one. Just this idea that we learned what to do with language by taking apart versus building up and though those yeah. skills are not necessarily bad 
if that's the primary focus, I'm just seeing the domino effect of that. And like I can see it online a lot. Um, but I think my biggest takeaway was probably just this idea of it all comes back to empathy and mm -hmm. seeing the human in front of us and being aware of our context and being willing to do work and do yeah. hard things. You know, I'm like, oh, gosh, like, awesome. just do some work. <laughs> gosh, it comes back to that with just about everything, including language. Got to do the work. So, yeah. Yeah, I love, I mean, yes, I'm extremely biased, but I do, one of the things I love about Blaine is that he is a very relational teacher, and I, I think mm -hmm. everybody got to hear that today. Oh, for so, sure. That's fun for me. It's powerful. Yeah, I loved it. Hey, y'all, we're going to take a bit of a summer break and do as we preach and teach. Time for some rest. Listeners will have the opportunity to listen to some of our most downloaded and favorite episodes, and then we will return in September with a new fantastic series. We're going to be returning to your ears on September the 2nd with a six-part series to fall back in love with your sex life, where we will unpack a concept map for a variety of intimate encounters that will help your marriage flourish. We will also spend some time debunking myths, pushing back against some unhelpful habits and beliefs, and challenging couples to embrace some new things that we think you will really love. Join us starting September 2nd. Enjoy some of our previous episodes. We'll be getting some feedback from you all on our IG profiles. Make sure to follow all three. You can find them in the show notes. See you soon, fully rested and ready for some fun. Thank you for joining us. Arable Podcast is hosted by Jenna Mountain and Kimberly Galindo. And edited and co-produced by Chris Vargas and hosted on Podbean. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Visit our website, arablepodcast.com, and find Arable Podcasts on Instagram or Facebook. You can also find both of us on Facebook. You can find me, Kimberly Galindo, on Instagram at the Kimberly Galindo. And me, Jenna Mountain, on Instagram at the Jenna Mountain.